All right, if you got your Bibles, open to Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42, and then we're going to continue our story in 1 Kings chapter 20 uh, with our character, Benadad. Now, we've been going through the story of Ahab and also of Elijah, but with the last week uh, and this week and the next week, we've been introduced to a dude named Benadad, uh, who is the king of Aram. Remember, that'd be like modern-day Syria. Uh, this, uh, this king, Benadad, and uh, uh, he's, uh, he's making some bad decisions. And we're going to get to see some bad decisions again today. Uh, but again, Job 42 and then 1 Kings chapter 20. As you're flipping that direction, um, our study today starts with this question. Have you ever been in a circumstance where the, where the world got larger in an instant? You ever been in a circumstance where the world got larger in an instant? For some of you, it was the day you left elementary school and went to junior high. Do you remember that day where I'm telling you, you've been the big dog, you know, in the small school, and I mean, everything's nice and easy, and then you walk through the doors of that junior high, and it is a completely different experience, right? It's a completely different scenario. Some of you remember that very well. For some of you, you were the big dog working outside of D.C., and then you thought, you know, I'm going to try my hand at this government job and you walk through the door here and it got real, real fast, right? Tony, you've been there. Okay, again, you have this big government job that you come to and the pressure here is just so much different. Again, the expectations are so much higher. Uh, it's just a very, very different animal uh, when you come up here. I can tell you for me personally on a good side, um, one of the things that really changed my world forever was the first time I went to New York City. Okay, uh, coming from Lubbock, Texas, where I grew up, um, I just that first time I got out of the tunnel uh, at uh, at the at uh, I see I got uh, got on the train and we came out of the tunnel uh, at uh, Times Square and I'll never forget when you come out of that tunnel and you just turn and you see the lights and some of the stuff you see on TV is smaller in person but so much of it is so much bigger and the lights are so much brighter. What we used to do over the years when I worked in student ministry is we would fly up here do mission work in DC. But for the graduated seniors, we gave them three days in New York City. Most of these Texas kids had never been there before. And I'll never forget, we'd come up and we'd always slate it to get on Union Station, get a train at Union Station here, takes you into Penn Station, right? And then instead of getting off the train and letting them see outside, we would put them on a train and then have them come up right there in Times Square. And uh, this is what they did every time. You watch the kids. They'd come up, 17, 18-year-olds. They'd come up, and without us telling them to do this, you'd watch it. They would just turn in a circle just and take in every inch of the city that they could in that moment. And you watch their eyes. It was like their world was expanding right there in front of you. Now, listen, that happens for believers when it comes to Almighty God as well. There are things that you go through. There are passages of scripture that you navigate. And all of a sudden, once you find it and see just how amazing God is, your view of him expands and grows because, for better or worse, sometimes we see God through a finite lens of how we see one another. When the truth is, he is something so vastly different that our view of him has to continually change, not because we're trying to form him to our theology, but because we're trying to wrap our heads around how powerful and amazing, how awesome he really is. Job chapter 42, that happens for Job. Look at Job 42, starting in verse one. In this passage, God gets bigger for him in an instant. Now, just for the record, the lead into Job 42 is three chapters where God is there before Job and speaking to him. And it's so powerful and so intense that Job basically just sits and takes it all in. He's gone through difficulty in his life. He's gone through hardship. He's gone through trial. And then all of a sudden, God shows up. And here is Job's response to the presence of Almighty God. 
It says, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things, that no plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask me, Lord, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Lord, surely I spoke of things that I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Underline that word wonderful. The indicator there from Job is that he's not saying I should have kept my tongue, I should have kept silent because this is so frightening and scary. No, he says, Lord, looking at you, being in your presence, the word wonderful comes to mind, filled with wonder. Look at verse four. He says, you said, listen, and I will speak, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Job 42.5 is one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. Job says, Lord, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. When faced with the power of Almighty God, Job says, Lord, when I thought of you, when I heard about you, I thought of you in this box. But now that my eyes have seen you, now that I've experienced you for myself, Job says, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. That word despise throws you off. It makes you think Job is saying, oh, I hate myself and I'm, I'm just nothing. I feel so low, lower than dirt. But the word wonderful points us to the truth. Job says, Lord, when I come into your presence, when I actually get to experience who you are, you're so much bigger than I ever could have dreamed. And he says, and I come face to face with the truth that I am but dust without you. If you've taken notes, write this down. Are you ready? When faced with the awesome presence of Almighty God, we are reminded that we are but dust without him. When faced with the awesome presence of Almighty God, we are reminded that we are but dust without him. We cannot interact with God the same way that we interact with each other. God is so much bigger than we are. He's so much bigger than humanity. He's the one who laid the foundations of the universe. And when we come to that realization, he gets bigger, and when he gets bigger, we have a greater understanding of how the world works. If you're taking notes, we're gonna address this question today. What does Benadad's story teach us about the awesomeness of God? What does Benadad's story teach us about the awesomeness of God? As we go through this passage, flip over now to 1 Kings chapter 20. And in this passage that we've been going through, studying about Elijah and King Ahab, we have a guy who assumes some things about God that are horribly wrong. And because of those things, he ends up making some really, really bad decisions. I don't know about you guys, but I love a good underdog story. Hell, underdog story people, it's great. Alberto, it's fun to cover an underdog story, isn't it? Hey, Alberto works in the media. It's fun to cover an underdog story because, again, it, you wrap your attention around it. And, again, the idea is, again, a little guy or a little, uh, a little, uh, a little uh, woman who goes through a situation where they fight against the big guy or against the big woman. And, man, all of a sudden, it erupts into this amazing, amazing story. Here's the problem. It's human-to-human -human interaction. God is never the villain. God is always the good guy. And so underdog stories are meant for us, and they're not meant for our interaction between us and God, because God is not wicked, and there is nothing we could ever do to overthrow or to beat God. And we're going to see that in the next passage as we come up. Look at 1 Kings chapter 20, starting in verse 22. And again, we'll address the question today. What does Benadad's story teach us about the awesomeness of God? 
Look at what happens starting in verse 22. It starts off with the word afterward. Okay, afterward is important because he's talking about specifically the story that we studied last week about Benadad, the king of Syria, the king of, of Aram, uh, who comes up and uh, he's been taxed. His people have been taxed by the Israelites for his entire life. He gathers an army together. He surrounds Israel and says, we used to pay taxes to you. We used to pay tribute to you. Now you're going to pay tribute to us. And at that point, Ahab, the king in Israel goes, all right, you can have it. We'll pay tribute to you. You have the bigger army. And then when he's gotten what he wanted, what he set out to do, we find out the real heart of Benadad. He's so generationally angry at what has been done to him by the Israelites and to his people. He steps up and goes, I don't just want your taxes. I want it all. I want to take you over. I want to take everything that you love, everything that the people you have in charge that they love. I want to take everything and I want it to be under my control. Well, at that point, the Lord rises up through the prophets and through the uh, uh, elders that are there in Israel, and they tell Ahab, we will stand with you and fight, but we can't just roll over and give this guy everything. We can't just roll over and be annihilated. It's at that point that, remember, a drunken Benadad makes a plan that's a terrible military strategy, but the Lord fights for Israel, and then all of a sudden, Benadad is overthrown. So here's what happens, verse 22. It says, afterward, that same prophet who came to Ahab in the earlier part of the passage came to the king of Israel and said, strengthen your position and see what must be done because next spring, the king of Aram, that's Benadad, will attack you again. So meanwhile, the officials of the king of Aram, that's Benadad, advised him. Underline the officials of the king advised him. Their gods are gods of the hills. That's why they were too strong for us. But if we fight them on the plains, surely we will be stronger than they. Now stop right there for just a minute. This is a complete misunderstanding of God. They come back and the advisors to the king, the one that Benadad has appointed that should know what they're talking about. Look at Benadad and they go, you know why we lost the Israelites? Because their God's a God of the hills and we're people of the plains. Now, can I just tell you this really spoke to me moving from Lubbock, Texas, all right? I am a people of the plains, all right? Okay, again, flat, treeless, nothing out there, all right? I am from the plains. Can I just tell you that was never an advantage to us in any way, shape, or form? Bailey, would you agree with that? Okay, Austin, you agree with that? Never an advantage to be people of the plains. But here, they don't understand it. In fact, they go not just God, but they're gods. They don't know God. They're not an authority on Yahweh, but all of a sudden they pitch to the leader in charge. Here's what we got to do. If we fight them on the plains, then we can defeat them. That's the reason we must have lost. Their God's the God of the hills. But if we fight them on the plains, we will defeat them. If you're taking notes, write this down. What does Benedad's story teach us about the awesomeness of God? Number one, God has no weakness. God has no weakness. Whenever we want to do something, that we are blocked by either God's law from doing it, or we again have this moment where we sit sit to ourselves and go, you know, this blessing could be great, but God's word really speaks against it, or there's something you don't want to do that God's word is compelling you to do, that the spirit is is drawing your heart to be a part of. We try to think of ways around it, and we try to weaken God's hold on the universe so that we can do that thing. In this case, Benadad goes, I want to annihilate them. I want to destroy the Israelites. I want to take all the stuff that they have that they've taken from us, and he comes back, and he He gets people around him that say, you know, their gods are gods of the hills and not of the plains. It's a lie. If you're taking notes, 
Write this down. Those who don't know God should not have an authoritative voice about God in your life. Let me say that again. Those who don't know God should not have an authoritative voice about God in your life. Benedad is about to buy in to what these leaders have said very confidently and very authoritatively in his life when they didn't have a stinking clue what they were talking about. There are some people in your life that you have allowed to affect your theology that had no stinking business ever speaking that truth authoritatively into your life. Be careful. You know how many times I have a conversation with somebody who has been rocked to their core in their faith journey because of one random conversation they had with somebody on a subway or one random conversation they had at a lunch table in high school 30 years earlier that rocked them to their very core. Why are you allowing someone to have authority in your theology when they have absolutely no business having that authority? Benedad listens And all of a sudden, he believes that God has a weakness. There's a great little movie called Finding Nemo. Just see Finding Nemo. Okay, great movie. I love that movie. In the movie Finding Nemo, there's a scene where Marlon, the father, is so loving and kind. And the the little fish Marlon wants to find his son Nemo. And he travels all the way across the ocean to find him. In fact, there's a cool scene where at the beginning of the movie, uh, Nemo looks at his dad and says, how old are sea turtles, dad? And then he goes, I don't know, son. I don't know. Well, in passing on his journey to find his son, he runs across a sea turtle named Crush and Crush, remember the, the, the surfer sea turtles on the EAC, that East Australian current? They're going through, and as he's about to leave the sea turtles, he remembers the conversation with his son, with the little fish Nemo, and he goes, hey, how old are you, Crush? And he goes, 150, dude, and still young, and they kind of go down the path. Well, at the end of the movie, there's this moment where Nemo finally is reunited with his father. Marlon has traveled all across the ocean. He's been so passionate about finding his son, has fought through fears, fought through all sorts of frightening circumstances because he wants to be with his son so badly. And do you remember? They're kneeling down on the seabed and he goes, son, guess what? I met a sea turtle and he was 150 years old. Do you remember what Nemo says back to him? His father has literally experienced hell and back to find his son. He's gone through such difficulty. He was face to face with the sea turtle. And the son looks up and he goes, but Sandy Plankton, which was apparently some fish from his little school, but Sandy Plankton says that they can only live to be 100. And you remember Marlon? He goes, Sandy Plankton, Sandy Plankton. He goes, I traveled halfway across the world to get here, and you're going to still listen to Sandy Plankton? What he's saying there is, why are you still holding on to that when we are on the other side of the world together, have been through so much? Why wouldn't you trust me over what the random kids said in the schoolyard that had no stinking clue what they were talking about? God has no weakness. He wins no matter what. He's in charge. If he wills it, It happens. Whenever you write a good story, the only way that you can come up with a way for an underdog story to work is to figure out what it is that the strong has as a weakness. Think about Superman. Superman eventually had to be a villain in the comics because he was too powerful. He had to be, because he was the strongest being in the comic books, 
They had to figure out something that took him down. And so what did they come up with? A green emerald-like thing that they hung around his neck called what? Kryptonite. You take somebody who can burn things with their eyes, who can breathe and freeze things, who can run faster than a speeding bullet, you know, who can fly across through the skies and who, again, is stronger than any being on the planet. How do you have that person? Oh, there you go. I got like a soundtrack going. How do you end up? How do you end up with that? How do you end up trying to figure out? You try to figure out something small that can take them down. You put this kryptonite around his neck, he crumbles like a piece of old pie. For those of you Lord of the Rings or Hobbit fans, it's a dragon named Smog in the Hobbit stories. So strong, can't be defeated by anything, but there's one scale that's off in his armor. And if they can fire a special arrow right into that amazing tiny spot, then all of a sudden the dragon can be taken down. Some of you work in the law. How do you pick apart a law that seems ironclad? You find the loopholes. Find the weakness, and then you'll be able to take it apart. Listen to me. With God, there is no hole in the armor. With God, there is no loophole that unravels his law. With God, there is no kryptonite to hang around his neck. Can I tell you another little secret? The story of Jesus is not an underdog story. That joker was going to win from the day he set foot on the earth. You realize that, don't you? He was going to win from the moment he got here. In fact, Paul writes it this way in Philippians. He humbled himself even to death on a cross. He chose to take that spot knowing that the victory would be his from the day he started the journey. With God... He has no weakness. If you've been sitting in this attitude that maybe there could be something that could happen, some boulder that God couldn't move, remember, God has no weakness. It doesn't matter if you're on the hills or on the plains. He will win always. I'm going to give you, throughout the sermon, some passages in the Psalms from David. Look at Psalm 139. Verses 7 through 12. I don't know if there was anybody who understood the power of God on this earth better than David. David writes about it here. We're going to look at three passages from him. But the first is Psalm 139, starting in verse 7. In the attitude of God having no weakness, here's what he says. Verse 7, Psalm 139. Lord, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed down in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Underline your right hand will guide me. The idea there is if I run so far to the right, his right hand will guide me. But if I run so far to the left, his right hand is still there to guide me at the same time as well. We're never beyond his reach. Verse 11, if I say surely the darkness will hide, me and the light will become like night around me. Even the darkness will not be able to be dark to you. The night will shine like the dawn for the darkness is as light to you. Stop right there for just a minute. David says, Lord, I try to think of where I could go where you're not, or if there's a place where your power doesn't exist. If I go all the way up to heaven, you're there. If I go all the way down to the depths, there's nothing I can do that's so good that gets away from you and nothing I can do that's so bad that it's without being within your reach. He then says, even if I try to hide in my sin in the darkness. The darkness is as light to you. There is no place I can go where you are not. God has no weakness. It begs the question today, does God's power have limitations in your mind? Does God's power have limitations in your mind? He is God and he can do whatever he wants to do. But that's not all. 
Look at what happens next in 1 Kings chapter 20. And now let's look at verses 24 and 25. So they tell him, fight on the plains. Fight them in Lubbock. That's the place to do it. Look at verse 24. And then they go do this. This is the leaders talking like they have authority. Do this. Remove all the kings from their commands and replace them with officers. Underline with officers. You must also raise an army like the one you lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot, so that we can fight Israel on the plains. Underline on the plains. I love that. Then surely we will be stronger than they are. And he agreed with them and he acted accordingly. Underline he agreed with them and acted accordingly. That is the most ridiculous statement of the entire passage that we've gone through. After hearing this intel, he actually believed it. A complete misunderstanding of God from false authoritative voices in his life. The first thing they say is they say, Fight him on the plains. And the second thing, don't miss this, because this is the argument of the current age. He says, we brought 32 kings to lead in the battle last time, but those kings are also the reason we lost. We fought on the wrong terrain, and you know what? We had spoiled people who got their position by birth, who were leading the military, now bring in officers, bring in enlisted people who actually have experience and merit in battle. Let's bring them in. Proper leadership is the reason that we didn't win that battle. It was bad terrain, and we didn't have the right leaders in place. Bring people in based on merit, and then we'll be able to fight forward. The the problem is, if you're taking notes, number one, uh, we got God has no weakness. Number two, God cannot be matched. God cannot be matched. Sometimes we can think to ourselves, if the right things happen, if the right leaders are in place, if the right system falls, then all of a sudden, does that cause problems and loosen God's hold on the universe? God's hold on the universe is not fragile, Amen. His hold on the universe is supreme and it is eternal. God cannot be matched in any way, shape, or form. But in the way that we deal with one another, that's how you win. We got any Red Sox fans in here? Raise your hand. There we go. We got a few over there, a few Red Sox Nation fans. This, little Red, this is your day today. You all ready for this? 2003, 2004 was the height of the Red Sox-Yankees battle. Okay, it was really something fun to watch. 03, 04, 03, what happened is uh, the Red Sox, who had lost at that point, it was 85 years in 2003 that the Red Sox had been without a championship. I mean, they brought losing to a new light, really. I mean, a new level. It was really something else. And for you baseball fans out there, you'll remember. 2003, something happened. The Oakland A's, the previous year, had just figured out the money ball strategy with Billy Bean and with that group. And uh, they, what they did, when the Red Sox couldn't hire Billy Bean as their general manager, they then went and hired a kid named Theo Epstein. He was 28 years old and the youngest general manager in the history of Major League Baseball. Theo comes in and finds lightning in a bottle his first year in a dude named David Ortiz. David Ortiz joins the team in 2003. The Epstein joins the team as general manager in 03. And then after losing to the Yankees in the championship series in 03, they realize we are one solid pitcher away from really being able to compete with them. So they bring in a dude named Kurt Schilling. Schilling hits the Red Sox. There you go. I saw that fist up there, all right? Okay, Kurt Schilling comes to the team in 2004, and the rest is history. Remember, Yankees are beating them three games to zero. Red Sox, for the first time in 
any, uh, in any uh, uh, playoff system that's a seven-game series, come back from being down 0-3. They win the World Series, 86-year drought of no World Series, but because of the retooling of leadership and the re-strategizing of the plan of action, that's how they end up becoming baseball royalty for the last 20 years. Please don't miss this. The ways of man are not the ways of our interaction between man and God. With man, we can retool and find ways to win. God is not the New York Yankees in that story. God is the writer of the rules of baseball. He is completely separate, and he cannot lose. In his case, he is above the entire situation. My dad used to say it this way. The laws of God are like the laws of physics. They cannot be broken, only illustrated. There is nothing we could ever do to match God to where it would be an actual competition against him. That's how we interact with one another, but that is not the way that we interact with the Almighty. Save your spot there in 1 Kings, and now flip over to Psalm chapter 8, verse 3. Oh, and I've got another quote here for you. You ready for this? No amount of organization, preparation, or technological advancement will loosen the Lord's hold on the universe. Let me say that again. No amount of organization, preparation, or technological advancement will loosen the Lord's hold on the universe. Now, just for the record, some of you need to hear that as you're making your own plans. But some of you needed to hear that because you come into a time where you get so fearful that something is going to happen in this world or something is going to happen at your job or something's going to happen in our country and that all of a sudden it's going to catch God off guard and then he will lose everything. The Lord cannot lose everything. In fact, he is actively fighting for us and he is matchless in his power. There is no change in leadership. There is no retooling of strategy that could end up destroying the hold that God has on the universe. No organization, no preparation, no technological advancement puts him to death. David outlines that strategy, by the way, in Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 through 9. Look at what he says here. I love these verses. David writes, Lord, when I consider your heavens, look at this. The work of your fingers, underline the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set into place. Stop right there for just a minute. You've got to remember, in the ancient world, there is this mythological view of Atlas holding the world on his shoulders, this Greek god that's holding the world on their shoulders, but man, they're sinking further and further because of exhaustion. What David says here is, I don't consider God going, oh, the world is going to crumble me. He says, when I think of God, the work of his Fingers have placed the stars into place, like building a model or painting something very small. He says, Lord, you have placed the stars with your fingertips. Even the ancients know that the stars and that the moon are huge. And for David to say, Lord, when I think of you, I think of you placing the stars with just the tips of your fingers, not hard or difficult, but something you do because you will it. And yet, look at the next part of the verse. He says in verse 4, again, we'll do verse 3 again. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set into place. Look at verse 4. What is man 
that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet, all the flocks and herds, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, that all that swim the paths of the seas. Then verse nine is so beautiful. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What he says here at the end is he goes, man, Lord, when I think about how big and powerful you are, your fingertips place the universe in motion, and yet you know me. Who am I that you are mindful of me, the son of man that you care for me in the same way that you place the universe together? You care about me. He cares about you. He's cared about the people of the past and the people into the future individually. He loves us so much, and he's given us power and authority. He's given us purpose. He comes back and says, Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth from the big to the small. What a beautiful thing for us to remember. God is matchless. There is nothing that someone or a group of people could ever do to retool, to refinance, to reset up and go after his hold on the universe. His hold is supreme. He's God. It begs the question, are you afraid of something that God can handle? Are you afraid of something that God can handle? Your problems are not like another boulder on Atlas's shoulders. It's at God's fingertips to be able to do what we need him to do. You gotta come to a point where you trust God. Peter says it this way, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. It's a beautiful picture. The Lord can handle your problem. He can handle your struggle. You just have to have the courage to bring it to him. God is matchless. Now flip back over to 1 Kings chapter 20, and we'll read the last verses of this story. 1 Kings chapter 20, and now verse 26. So again, they've said, fight them on the plains, get, more, uh, get leaders based on merit and not based on birthright, and then we'll be able to beat them. He says, yeah, you're right. I've gotten the authority of my leadership here. This is what we need to do. Now look at verse 26. So the next spring, Benadad mustered the Arameans and they went to attack Aphek and fight against Israel. When the Israelites were also mustered and also given provisions, they marched out to meet him. The Israelites camped opposite them like two small flocks of goats while the Arameans covered the entire countryside. The picture here is that Israel is so totally outnumbered, they see them like two flocks of goats. Now look at what it says. But the man of God came up, that's the prophet from the earlier part of the story, came up and told the king of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Because the Arameans think the Lord is a God of the hills and not of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army, underline this vast army into your hands, and you will know that I am the Lord. In this circumstance, we have now verse 29. For seven days, they camped opposite each other, and on the seventh day, the battle was joined. The Israelites inflicted 100,000 casualties in one, uh, on, on the Aramean foot soldiers in one single day. Underline 100,000 in one single day. The rest of them escaped to the city of Aphek, where the wall collapsed 
collapsed and killed 27,000 of them. Underline collapsed and killed 27,000 of them. And Benadad fled to the city and he hid in an inner room. Stop right there for just a minute. This guy who had been so prideful that the leadership had been on his side, that the information was on his side, that experts had told him a God of the hills and not a God of the plains, that experts had told him do this based on merit and not based on birthright, and then everything's gonna fall into place. The truth was, this was a guy trying to commit a mass genocide of the Jewish people and Yahweh stands up for them. And when he does, it didn't matter how big the army was, God was stronger. If you're taking notes, write this down. What does Benadad's story teach us about the awesomeness of God? Number one, God has no weakness. Number two, God cannot be matched. And number three, God is never outnumbered. God is never outnumbered. This took on new life for me when we moved to D.C. April 27th will be seven years for Autumn and I. Seven years that we've lived in this wonderful city. And can I tell you what we've seen over the years here? If you want the law to change and you have enough people, you can get at least the attention of the country and you might just be able to see the laws change as well. Up on the mall in the last seven years, for good and for bad, we have seen large groups of people march to the Capitol and we've seen them experience massive social change. Here's the problem. The way we interact with each other, that's how you get things done in a democratic culture. You gather enough people together and you change the law. But listen to me. There is not one instance in all of Scripture where a group of people gathered together and came to Yahweh, almighty God of the universe, and said, we want you to change your law. There's not one instance in the entirety of Scripture where that happened. Do you know when large groups of people gathered before God? They gathered before God to repent. They gathered before God to beg for mercy. And they gathered before God to pray for blessing. Now, just for the record, you would say, are you saying that it's wrong to march for something you believe in? Absolutely not, but don't miss this. The way that we interact with one another is not the same way that you interact with Almighty God. The laws of God are like the laws of physics. They cannot be broken, only illustrated. There is nothing that enough people could ever get together and do that would overthrow or change God's holy law. Amen? Wrap your heads around that. Because for some reason, we forget it. Now, just for the record, you don't run nation the same way that you operate in your relationship with Almighty God. You can't force everybody else to do it the same way you do it. I'm talking about you personally in your relationship. If God says it's a sin in his word, it's a sin. If the Lord says we're to do it and he commands us in his word to live for him, then you better stink and live for him. Otherwise, you'll find no joy and no peace. We've got to come to a point where we realize the will of the people pales in comparison in our relationship with Almighty God. He cannot be outnumbered. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? The will of God is not subject to crowd approval or public sentiment. If he wills it, it happens. Let me say that again. The will of God is not subject to crowd approval or public sentiment. If he wills it, it happens. It's the reason when Moses meets with Almighty God 
he looks at God and says, here's the deal, God. Um, if you're calling me to go and to speak to Pharaoh and tell him to do the unthinkable and let the people go from Egypt, I need to know your name. He says, tell me what the name of this God is, this unnamed God is, so that I can give that name to Pharaoh under whose authority that I'm asking this impossible thing. And do you remember what the Lord says to him? He says, my name is I am that I am. Can I tell you what I am that I am means? It's the to be verb in Hebrew. He looks at him and says, you want my name? My name is I is, dude. I am, okay? This is not between you and Pharaoh. This is a situation where I am has willed it and it is going to happen. And what you find from Moses at that point is he goes, okay, now that we're clear, I get it. Moses lays out. It's God basically saying, dude, I name gods, okay? I'm the one who is beyond your lifetime before your lifetime. I am. The will of God is not subject to crowd approval, public sentiment. He wills it, and it happens. One last set of verses. Save your spot there. In the, or excuse me, First Kings. Now we can just flip over to Psalm 86, and we'll read verses 7 through 10. God is not outnumbered, and he cannot be swayed by a crowd. Here's what it says next. Psalm chapter 86, verses 7 through 10. David closes it out by saying it this way. He says, in the day of my trouble, Lord, I call to you, for you will answer me. Verse 8, among the gods there is none like you, O Lord. No deed can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name. I love verse 10. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Circle, highlight, and underline those last four words. David comes back and says, in my day of trouble, when I get nervous and concerned about the world around me, when I see the crowds begin to gather, and Lord, they stand against you. They surround us in battle and want to annihilate us and destroy us. He says, on that day, I remember whatever God it is they claim, whatever strength it is that they claim, whatever it is that their experts have had to say on the subject. He says, you alone are God. It's not you versus another God. God. It's not you uh, coming to strength against another heavenly being. No, you are God and you are God alone. He is the one and only. He cannot be outnumbered. It begs the final question today. Do crowds of opposition make you feel helpless? It can happen in this city sometimes, can't it? If you feel helpless because of what you see happen up the road or in your neighborhood or on Facebook or on Twitter, when you begin to feel helpless, listen to me. Two simple words. Have faith. Have faith. And remember that God cannot be outnumbered by the culture. God cannot be outnumbered by a group rallying together. God is God, and he is God alone. I love you guys. I appreciate you listening today. A little bit more academic of a message than I usually throw at you, but whatever it is that the Scripture says, we go through it verse by verse, don't we? Some of you may have needed to hear that today, and it's been my prayer that the Lord would expand your view of him as we went through our study. Let's bow our heads for prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around but just me,